Hello, hello, family and friends, and thank you all for being patient for our season one premiere. Now, the first few episodes that I did were to test the waters, I guess you could say, and the support that I received made me feel like this whole idea would be worth it. In the short two months that I was putting the episodes out, I was able to gain listeners from all around the world, which I have to say made me feel pretty good. Not for numbers, but for the fact that I was able to share some of our treasured culture and stories with people abroad. I want to take this moment to tell each one of my listeners, thank you. Thank you for giving me your time by listening to me tell stories about what I love. To my friends and family, thank you for supporting my ideas and staying with me through my struggles. And to my wife, Leslie, firmatism, you know. Now, if you like what you hear, please head on over to our website at backroadlegends.com after the show. There you'll find everything you need to help support the show. Our show links, all of our social links, and the links to our Patreon and merchandise store are up there as well. We have a ton of shirts, hats, hoodies, and a variety of many other items that are available right now. Now this of course is to all help support the show. Now I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't get into this for the money. As a matter of fact, I haven't even made a dime off of it. I only ask for support for the show because to bring you the kind of quality material that I'd like to, there are quite a few expenses involved. Mainly the research. In order to research these topics, I accrue many subscription fees and travel expenses, which I don't mind. The thing is, the easier it is for me to pay for these expenses, the quicker I'm able to bring you the kind of episodes that I'm still dreaming about. My main vision for this show is to be able to put boots on the ground for most of these episodes so I can bring you a first-person encounter of the story. Now, I'm not asking you to become a subscriber on Patreon or anything like that, although it wouldn't hurt my feelings, but there are many other ways that you can help out the show. Of course, through merchandise purchases, But if you'd like to just make a quick single donation without any strings attached or without any annoying t-shirts being sent to you, you can do that through our website. Just click on the donate button and follow the prompts. We also have a Kickstarter page up and running until November 10th. This is also to help us get up and running by funding the needs of the show for travel expenses, show costs, and production equipment. Now we have a goal set for $5,000 and we're currently at $26, so we definitely have a way to go, but we still have some time. Now you can find that by going to kickstarter.com and searching for the name of the show, Backroad Legends of the American Southwest. Now I'm not asking for any long-term commitments, I promise, but if you believe in the show and what we're doing, every dollar helps. I hope you all be a part of making history with us. Thank you all, and now on with the show. Oh, and P.S., if you have any legends that you feel need to be told, feel free to let me know on Facebook or email me directly, Cody, C-O-D-Y, at backroadlegends.com. I look forward to hearing your stories. Who knows? I might even let you tell it yourself.
Since the beginning of time, there's been an ongoing battle of good versus evil. In fact, it's been well documented throughout time on the pages of books such as the Bible and the Quran. These stories have been painted on cave walls and handed down by the tradition of storytelling. I think there is absolutely nothing better than a good story. It's an escape. It's a fantasy. In fact, a good story is whatever you want it to be, and its value comes solely from the worth that you put on it yourself. From stories, legends are born. There's just something about a good legend that captivates me, and words alone cannot describe the feeling I get when I'm studying one, and all of a sudden I feel like I'm part of it. It's almost as if by some supernatural connection, I feel physically connected to these tales while I'm immersed in them. I feel the pain and the sadness, the hopelessness, despair, fright, love, and anger. I feel all of these emotions when I'm wrapped up in a good tale. However, there is a catch. Nothing does this to me more than the tales and the legends that are told about the part of the country that I call home, the American Southwest. The Southwest is a land of beauty and enchantment. It's a land steeped in rich lore and culture and tradition. It takes a special breed of person to be able to appreciate its beauty, and if one thing is for certain, it's definitely not a land that's easy to survive on. It's been told that the battle of good versus evil has played a major role in shaping the region. Everything from shaping the region's beliefs, religions, and superstitions, all the way down to the landscape of it. The American Southwest is believed to be a major battlefield in this war. So let's take a trip to some of the earliest spoken records of the region. Most, if not all, of the native tribes undoubtedly had their version of the devil. They also had their own version of God as well. Nothing too out of the ordinary here, right? Well, what if I told you that a native Texas tribe already had the same idea of God as the Spanish settlers? Still not out of the ordinary, right? Now, what if I told you that they had already been told the story of Jesus and God before they'd even ever met any white men or missionaries? This is where most of you should scratch your heads. For those of you that don't know though, the Native Americans traditionally had their own religions until the first European settlers arrived and tried to convert them to Christianity. It's generally a widely known fact that the Native Americans had never heard the story of God and Jesus until the Europeans arrived. So how could they have already known this story yet never laid eyes on the white man before? Enter Sister Maria, a 17th century Spanish nun who knew everything there was to know about Texas and the natives, yet never once in her life ever even left Spain. Sister Maria was said to have been blessed with a gift of what is called bilocation. Sister Maria was one of the most important figures in Texas's religious history, yet she never even set foot in Texas at all. This all started in 1602 when Maria was born in Spain to Catholic parents of a noble rank. Strangely, just barely beyond her toddler years, Maria showed an unusual devotion to life of prayer and worship. When Maria was only 10, she couldn't wait for the opportunity to join a convent. When she was 12, 
Her parents gave in and gave her their blessing to leave home and join the church. But before all of this could come to fruition, Maria's mother herself had a vision in which God instructed her to convert their own house into a convent. Within four years, Maria's father would join a local monastery to become a friar with his sons while Maria and her mother both became nuns. At the age of 18, Maria finally took her vows and became known as Maria de Jesus. The habit, or gown of her order, was a dark cobalt blue in color. Now, finally a nun, Maria spent more time than she ever had before alone in prayer. Maria's religious devotions rapidly intensified, so much so that her sisters soon became concerned for her health. This was due to a life of frequent fasting and extreme deprivation. Yet for Maria, she couldn't have been happier. It wasn't long before Maria told everyone why she was so happy, despite living a life of extreme sacrifice. She revealed that through prayer and meditation that God had blessed her with the divine gift of bilocation, meaning that she could be two places at once and that she could appear to God's children in faraway lands and teach them about Jesus. She said that she first appeared to the native Humano tribes of present-day Texas starting in the 1620s. Well, she did this for about 10 years or so from the ages of 18 to 29, and according to legend, the natives of this time frame had in fact confirmed that the Lady in Blue, as they called her, had indeed been among them. The first proof of this is in the story told by 50 Humano natives who appeared at a Spanish mission asking the Franciscan priests to teach them about Jesus. Shocked, the priests asked the group how they knew of the story of Jesus. The men replied that the Lady in Blue had come to them and taught them the gospel and had instructed them to go west to find holy men who could teach them more about the faith and baptize them. They also said that the Lady in Blue had come to them not by horse, but from the sky. The legend goes that the priest showed the tribesmen a painting of Mother Luisa of Carrion dressed in a similar blue cloak and asked, Does she look like her? To which they replied, No. She wears a blue cloak identical to hers, but Our Lady is much younger and she's very beautiful. The priests were bewildered because they had no missions or missionaries in this part of the country yet in what is now modern-day West Texas. On top of that, they certainly knew of no nuns who had even vaguely attempted any missionary work there. It was quite the mystery indeed. The head cleric of New Mexico at that time, Esteban de Pereira, asked two priests to go back with the Humanos to their homelands and verify these claims. They traveled for days until they reached what is present-day San Angelo, Texas. Just before the party reached the village, they were met with a small group of about 12 Humanos who, oddly enough, knew exactly where and when in advance that this encounter would take place. On top of that, and without any prompting from the Spanish, the Humanos knew to venerate the crosses that hung from the necks of the priests. Quickly, they kneeled and kissed the hems of their robes and praised them. The priests wondered how this was possible. Who had instructed them on this Catholic behavior? The Humanos went further to explain that their village was on the brink of extinction and that they were ready to move when the Lady in Blue appeared to them 
and told them to stay and that missionaries would be arriving in a matter of days by the river, exactly where they found them. They said that she came to them like a light at sunset. She was a kind and gentle person who spoke sweet words to them that they could understand. According to a respected religious historian, Maria preached to the Humanos in Spanish, but they understood her in their own language. And when they spoke to her in their language, she understood them in Spanish. Over the course of the next few days, roughly 2,000 Humanos and natives from surrounding tribes were baptized. These claims eventually resulted in the custodian of the Franciscans in New Mexico to travel all the way to Spain himself to interview Maria. According to him, Maria told him of things in Texas and about the world of the Humanos that only one who had actually been there could have known. Her bilocation claims were considered credible then and to this day have yet to be debunked. In fact, the Vatican still agrees with these claims and is currently considering her for sainthood. Side note, in 1909 Maria's casket was opened and a scientific examination was done on the 17th century corpse. Records were written down and Maria's casket was sealed back up. In 1989, a Spanish physician by the name of Andreas Medina conducted another scientific study on Maria's body. Much to his surprise, Maria's body had not decomposed at all in the 80 years between the two studies. This is what's known as incorruptibility and is considered by some as further evidence of sanctity. According to Humano legend, the last time Maria appeared to them, she blessed them and then disappeared into the hills. The next morning when they awoke, the countryside was covered with a blanket of strange blue flowers that were like the color of Maria's cloak. These were said to have been the first of the iconic blue bonnets that the state of Texas holds so dearly today. Oh, and Maria's body was actually photographed before she was placed back into her casket. Some of these pictures you can find online but I'll also be posting them in the PIC archives for this episode. Indeed, the Southwest is no stranger to the tales of the divine. Another such situation that paints a story of God in the Southwest is that of an Italian monk named Giovanni Maria de Agostini. This story begins in 1836 on the plains of Kansas along the old Santa Fe Trail when a man named Don Eugenio Romero of Las Vegas, New Mexico, who's also rumored to be one of my great uncles, was approached by a man carrying a note that read, To whom it may concern. This is to certify that the bearer, Juan Maria Ostinana, is a good person of character a missionary to the Indians who has lived 40 days in a cave in this vicinity and has lived in caves elsewhere for 35 years, subsisting wholly upon vegetable foods, occupying himself in religious meditation, and befriending the poor. This letter was signed by many respectable residents of the area and was more or less asking if Giovanni could join the company of the wagon train west for safe passage. You're most welcome to ride with us, Don Eugenio said, to which Giovanni replied, For your kindness, may God bless you, brother. Your protection I accept, but for the journey, I shall walk. Romero wasn't having any of this and urged the man not to be foolish, for it was a long walk. 
Giovanni simply smiled and told Romero that the wagons could not possibly carry the weight that was upon him. Puzzled, Romero looked at the scraggly man up and down and thought, how could this be? He only has a few items. Well, legend has it that to prove his point, Giovanni sat in the wagon, and to their surprise, the wagon would not budge an inch until he hopped out of it. So walk he did, all 550 miles of the journey back to Las Vegas, New Mexico. Throughout the journey, Romero and Giovanni became very close friends. Romero learned that Giovanni had traveled the world on foot as a part of many separate pilgrimages. He told him of his travels and everywhere he'd been. He proclaimed to Romero that it was not adventure that he was after, but rather solitude. Solitude from what? Well, solitude from worship. You see, everywhere Giovanni went, he had a reputation of performing miraculous events. Eventually, after spending enough time in any given place, he would become overwhelmed with requests to help and would have to leave. Upon arriving in Las Vegas, Romero offered for Giovanni to stay in his spacious ranch house just outside of town. Giovanni simply said, I've promised God to live out my life as a hermit, my friend. Do you know of any caves out in the wilderness? Well, Romero did in fact know of several caves up in the canyons on his own ranch, and that's where Giovanni took up his simple residence, taking nothing with him but a simple blanket for a bed. For many years, the hermit stayed in the surrounding mountains of the community, trying to maintain his life of solitude. But with every miracle he performed, more and more people flocked to his cave in search of help. Some even built their homes at the bottom of the mountain just to be closer to him. He often visited the homes of the town's well-to-do, in which they always offered him the finest foods and amenities. Dedicated to his way of living, though, the hermit would only ever eat a simple mush of cornmeal and water and would always sleep on the floor. No matter what he was tempted with, he never took pleasure in it. Up in his cave, it was rumored that he didn't even have warm clothes and only the simple blanket for a bed. For those of you that don't know, the mountains of New Mexico in which he lived in can see as much as 12 feet of snow in the wintertime and the temperatures can drop down to below zero. Needless to say, the townspeople wouldn't allow a man of his reverence to live in such a way, so they built him a log cabin up on the peak of the mountain. Now, legend has it that to quench the thirst of the workers that were building him the cabin, Giovanni was said to have scratched the earth with his walking stick only for a spring of pure, clean water to erupt from the ground. It's also told that for three whole days he was able to feed the workers each their fill of atole from a small copper kettle that never went empty. Oh, and call it what you will, but fact is, a running spring still flows near the top of Hermit's Peak today. The cabin, however, has been rotted away. Now the cabin was a strange entity in and of itself. Giovanni had the cabin built to his own specifications, and I can't help but think that he built it this way as a form of penance for accepting shelter, or maybe as a reminder for him to stay humble. Either way, the cabin's design was like no other. The door was instructed to be cut just barely wide enough for a human being to squeeze through, and if that wasn't bad enough, 
Giovanni instructed his friends to drive short nails through the inner facings of the openings so that he could neither enter nor leave without first painfully gouging his flesh with the nails. To top it off, he requested two final items. First, he requested his axemen to cut down a tree that was long enough to bridge one side of the canyon to the other. That's all fine and dandy, except the canyon was a thousand feet deep, and as a reminder to himself of just how precious life really is, he would pace across this log daily where a single misstep would spell the end for him. The second request was rather simple, and that was for three huge wooden crosses to be erected at the northeast edge of the cliff. These crosses have since rotted away, but are religiously replaced every year by a family who makes a devout pilgrimage to Hermit's Peak every year during Holy Week. The day finally came once again for Giovanni to be on his way. He left south for Mexico, but only made it as far as the Oregon Mountains around Las Cruces before he decided to hang it up and live out the rest of his life in solitude in a cave there. He stayed in Mesilla for a little while, where he once again made a number of friends and amassed quite a following of people again. Sadly, one day when his friends went to check on him out in his cave, he was found face down in an arroyo murdered. A lance through his heart and a crucifix in his hand, it was suspected that he was killed by the Apaches. The odd thing is here, his scalp wasn't missing, which led many to believe that he was murdered by somebody else. Wild theories persist still to this day as to how Giovanni was murdered. Some say that he was murdered by those that were jealous of him, while other theories suggest that he was actually murdered by fellow Italians who knew him from the old country and killed him for some disagreements that they had back in Italy. The truth is still an unsolved mystery of the desert. My final story of the divine comes to you from the history books of the Kiowa. It was the summer of 1839, just east of El Paso, Texas, in what is now known as Waco Tanks. Waco Tanks has a rich history of native culture. Many tales are told of this place, and many artifacts, including cave art, have been discovered here. The Tigua Pueblos have told many stories of using this area to fight off the Spanish in Coronado. And in this particular story, a squad of Mexican militiamen were engaged in a fierce battle and a long siege against a small band of Kiowa natives. They had been at battle for nine days and the Mexicans had the small group trapped in one of the caves out at Waco Tanks. The party had ventured from their homelands in the Texas Panhandle out to El Paso for a raid, only for their plans to be foiled. Now, nine days later, they felt as if this cave was going to be their tomb. Starving and thirsty, they were quickly giving up hope. From a small opening up above in the top of the cave, they heard a familiar voice. It was the voice of a native scout for the Mexicans speaking to them in Comanche. They understood what he was saying because they were allies with the Comanche. The scout told them not to fear, that the Mexicans wanted to take them alive and not dead that soon they would drop provisions in the cave to keep them alive. Well, despair turned to hope, only to turn to despair again when the militiamen dropped a bag into the cave filled with rattlesnakes rather than provisions. From up above, all they could hear was the taunting laughter of the militiamen, 
One of the men in the group, not willing to die like an animal, told the rest, We shall not die in here, helpless, but rather up there like true Kiowa warriors. They all agreed and came up with a plan. Unfortunately, one of the members was already severely wounded and was told that he would be left behind to die. Saddened by the news, but understanding, he asked for and was provided with his death song so that he could die in peace. The men waited until the cover of night before climbing up the cave walls and squirming out of one of the tiny openings up top. Just when it seemed that the coast was clear though, gunfire broke out showering the remaining men in a hailstorm of bullets. Two of the men were wounded, one of them scalped. Miraculously, though, he ended up surviving and making it back home. The other wounded man, Cognate, now becomes the focus of our story. Cognate took a bullet right through him, leaving him mortally wounded but still alive. The group managed to steal a few of the Mexican horses and make a getaway. They rode as fast as they could out towards the Guadalupe Mountains. Out across the salt plains and up through the pass, they managed to completely elude the crowd they'd left behind them back in El Paso. About a day's ride outside of El Paso, they made it to a spot where they'd left spare horses and supplies guarded by two young boys. They swapped out their horses for they'd ridden the Mexican horses to exhaustion and decided to just rest for one night. Well... It was becoming more evident that their wounded comrade, Cognate, was not going to make it back home. They set out for the plains in the morning, but by the time they reached a spring near the summit of Sun Mountain, they decided to leave Cognate there to die. His wounds were festering and he was now unconscious. There was nothing they could do for him. So they placed him near the water of the spring and covered him with rocks so that predators would not scatter his body. As was custom, their plan was to ride home and eventually return to collect his bones for a proper burial. They said their sorrowful goodbyes to Cognate and left him there underneath a pile of rocks to die alone. Sometime around nightfall, though, Cognate awoke out of his unconscious state. He knew immediately that he'd been left alone to die. He knew that once his friends returned to his village that they would kill his horses and burn his belongings and never speak his name again. As was custom, though. These thoughts saddened him, of course, but his sadness quickly turned into fear, for as the sun set on the desert horizon, the area came to life with the sounds of the area's nocturnal wildlife. Most notably, the wolf. Cognate could hear the wolf howling, and every time it did, the sound was getting closer and closer. Cognate knew the smell of his rotting flesh must be what's attracting the wolf for sure. Finally, he heard the noise that he'd been dreading all night, and that was the sound of the wolf pulling the mound of rocks apart to get to him underneath, one by one. When Cognate was finally exposed, he braced himself to be ripped to shreds by the wolf, but no such thing happened. The wolf laid down next to Cognate and started licking him and cleaning his wounds. Then he laid down next to him to keep him warm, shielding him from the chilly air of the desert night. Cognate drifted off to sleep, and in the morning, the wolf was gone. This went on for four days, the wolf returning every night to clean and protect Cognate. Drifting in and out of consciousness, Cognate suddenly heard the bone flutes of a war party off in the distance. As he was listening, 
He had a vision of Taimei, the Sundance God. Taimei told Konyate, I will not let you die. You shall see your home and your friends again. It is said there that in the darkness of the night by the spring, Taimei gave Konyate special mystical powers, or medicine, and instructed him to build a new war shield and a sacred staff as proof and symbol of new power. Before Taimei left, though, he told Konyate, Help is near, and then sent the rain to cool Konyate and clean his wounds. That night, the wolf returned, but only for a little while, until it heard horses approaching off in the distance. A raiding party of six Comanche warriors were astonished at the sight of Konyate and to see him alive. They had run across the band of Kiowa warriors on their way home and were asked by the Kiowas to retrieve the body of their fallen warrior as a favor. Needless to say, these men were surprised to see him alive. The Comanche cleaned Konyate, fed him, and dressed him in clean clothes, and once he was strong enough, they proceeded to take him back home. Well, upon arriving back home in his village, he was greeted with much joy, of course. Staying true to what Taimei instructed him to do, he built a new war shield and a sacred staff. Konyate rose to a venerated place in the sun dances and played an integral role in the medicine lodge ceremonies. His sacred staff was an adorned forked stick made of stripped seasoned china berry wood and served as a symbol to Konyate's medicine and as an icon for Kiowa spirituality. In 1849, the year before Konyate died of cholera, he gave his staff to his nephew, Koyante. During the 1857 Sundance that took place on the banks of the Arkansas River in Oklahoma, 18 years after the siege at Waco Tanks, Texas, Koyante sacrificed his uncle's staff by driving the forked end into the ground inside the medicine lodge. One year later, he returned to find the staff reversed with the forked end pointing towards the sky. He also noted that this staff, which had been stripped of its bark years before, was now sprouting leaves. Ten years later, that staff had flourished and had grown into a beautiful tree. This tree became a reminder and a memorial for a tragedy that served as a building block for Kiowa spirituality and Southwestern lore. I hope you enjoyed our first installment of God and the Devil in the Southwest. If I have any native or Spanish listeners out there, please forgive me if I butchered the pronunciations of certain words. On our next episode, we're going to go into the devil's presence in the southwest and why many people actually believe that he lives here and walks among us. We're going to get a little more into the darker side of things next time by going over the story of David Parker Ray, also known as the Toy Box Killer from Truth or Consequences, New Mexico the only serial killer who is actually never convicted of a murder, yet is still believed to have murdered upwards of 60 women. We're also going to talk a little bit about the Butcher of San Antonio and discuss a few ritualistic killings from the region in which people claim the devil made him do it. Then, we're going to go back to an old native tale about why they actually think the devil is trapped in a cave in the Big Bend area of Texas. And then we're probably going to wrap the chapter up with another old tale of a skinwalker who roams Highway 666 in the Four Corners region. This skinwalker that I believe that I've actually had an encounter with personally. 
We hope you'll join us next time as we have quite a bit to cover still. Our next show may be listener discretion advised as it'll touch on some very graphic material, but I'm trying to figure out a way to keep it family friendly, so maybe I'll just have to put out two different versions, what do you say? Also, please don't forget to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I really could use some followers on my social feeds right about now. I had no idea how much having followers on Twitter and Instagram actually helped out the show. It helps us keep our website up and running, and it also helps the show out in so many other behind-the-scene ways. You can find all of our social links on our website at backroadlegends.com. That's all one word, backroadlegends.com. And last but not least, I'm going to leave you with a small teaser for our next episode. This is an old folk poem of the devil in Texas. I have no idea when this was actually written, but I do know that it goes back to the cowboy days of the 1800s. Enjoy! This is called Hell in Texas. The devil were told in hell he was chained, and a thousand years he there remained, and he never complained, nor did he groan, but determined to start up a hell of his own, where he could torment the souls of men without being chained to a prison pen. So he asked the Lord if he had on hand anything left when he made the land. The Lord said, yes, I had plenty on hand, but I left it down on the Rio Grande. The fact is, old boy, the stuff is so poor, I don't think you can use it in hell anymore. But the devil went down to look at the truck and said if it came as a gift, he was stuck. For after examining it, careful and well, he concluded the place was too dry for hell. So in order to get it off of his hands, God promised the devil to water the lands. For he had some water, or rather some dregs, a regular cathartic that smelt like bad eggs. Hence the deal was closed and the deed was given, and the Lord went back to his place in heaven. And the devil said, I have all that is needed to make a good hell, and thus he succeeded. He began to put thorns on all the trees, and he mixed the sand with millions of fleas. He scattered tarantulas along all the roads, put thorns on the cacti and horns on the toads. He lengthened the horns of the Texas steers and put an addition on jackrabbit's ears. He put little devils in the bronco steed and poisoned the feet of the centipede. The rattlesnake bites you, the scorpion stings, the mosquito delights you by buzzing his wings. The sandbirds prevail, so do the ants, and those that sit down need half soles on their pants. The devil then said that throughout the land he'd managed to keep up the devil's own brand, and all would be mavericks unless they bore the marks and scratches and bites by the score. The heat in the summer is 110, too hot for the devil and too hot for men. The wild boar roams through the black chaparral, it's a hell of a place he has for hell. The red pepper grows by the bank of the brook. The Mexicans use it in all that they cook. Just dine with one of them and then you will shout, I have a hell on the inside as well as without.